So the question is, how do everyday people like us who don't have an Ivy League education or some trust fund to fall back on manage to start stacking the wealth in our favor? All while still having to manage everyday financial responsibilities. That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Scott from Scotland, and you're listening to Wealth Stats. All right, let's do it, Stephen. Really appreciate, first of all, uh, for having me here today. I can promise you this, that, you know, one hour with you is uh, so valuable, um, and I can't wait to, to share what we're going to share. Uh, this is really just a conversation. I know he's going to drop some value bombs over this next hour. I always say, hey, Stephen, can I get like 15 minutes of your time? And somehow that 15 minutes, I can turn into 20 minutes and then 20 minutes into 30 minutes. And uh, as we started talking last week and just recapping about 2020 and, and making plans going into 2021, man, there was just so much that came out of it. And I think like one of the things that I wanted to start off with, right, is it's so easy to get caught up in all of the bad things, if you will, that happened in 2020. But at the same time, there's a lot of good things that happened. And so, you know, as we get momentum going into 2021, Stephen, let's recap. Uh, what is the biggest thing that you can say that you learned from 2020 that you're going to take away from it? That's a good question. And, you know, the I would say emphatically, and then I'll kind of go back after and give you a little bit of an explanation, but I'll say emphatically, 2020 solidified for me do not fight the Fed. It solidified it for me in a big way. If we look back just over the past few years, for example, let's go all the way back to 2016, right? So if we remember the beginning of the year, January of 2016 was not a very good time for the markets. We were basically in free fall, but we bottomed on February 2nd, 2016. Can anyone tell me why we bottomed on February 2nd, 2016? It was because Janet Yellen had come out and said, we are not going to raise interest rates until after the 2016 presidential election. Mm. So, of course, if we remember from basically February 2nd, 2016, for many months after that, the market very much rallied. Let's fast forward a little bit to 2018. So if any of us remember January of 2018, the market was screaming higher, right? The, the uh, United States government had just passed tax reform. A lot of companies were giving bonuses and they were increasing their wages for their employees due to the tax reform. Market was really firing on all cylinders out of the gate in January of, two, of, of 2018. But what ended up happening, and I remember the date because it's my birthday, January 26th, was the market topped out. And for the next two weeks, we had, if you remember, a VIX explosion where everyone was really short, a lot of premium. The market went the other the other way and it got hurt. But of course, it bottomed in the first in the excuse me, in the second week of February. Why? Because the Federal Reserve at that point came out and said, we will not be raising interest rates to at least next year. So from that bottom in the second week of February of 2018, the market rallied without even a 5% correction all the way till October 2nd, 2018. Now, as I'm kind of telling this information, I want everyone to understand, I'm coming up with very specific dates for these things for very specific reasons. Because on October 2nd, 2018, if we remember, Jerome Powell, the head of the Fed, he came out and said, we are going to be reducing the size of our balance sheet on repeat. What happened from that moment? 
the market sold off and we had a 20% correction until the day after Christmas 2018. So December 26, 2018. What happened on that day? The Fed came out and said, we are no longer going to be reducing our balance sheet on automatic. And at some point in 2019, we're going to stop re, uh, reducing the size of that balance sheet in general. So from the day after Christmas 2018, the market rallied without a 5% correction until when? October 1st, 2019. What happened on October 1st, 2019? The Fed came out and said, we are going to be increasing the size of our balance sheet. So if anyone traded the last quarter of 2019, they'll tell you the market basically grinded higher every single day. And after hearing this conversation, that shouldn't really be a surprise for anyone. Now let's go into 2016. The market takes a crack. Coronavirus hits the United States. It starts spreading everywhere. The market crashes from February 24th until March 23rd. Now, again, how can I be so specific about these tops and about these bottoms. Well, let's talk about that bottom. The, the Fed come out and says, okay, on March 23rd, the Fed says, we have decided, we, the Fed, we are going to be the lender of last resort. So if you are a municipality, if you are a company and you think you're going to go out of business, you're going to go bankrupt, we'll give you that money for no interest, no matter what. And of course, we have rallied, and I think this morning we're at an all-time high, but we've rallied straight from there. So when I think about 2020, it solidified for me the fact that I am very confident that the stock market is more or less a reflection of what the Fed is doing, and you cannot fight the Fed. But they did say something, they did say something that is different now than they've ever said before. If we go back to 2011, that was the last time people were talking about how there may be inflation coming into the United States. Yep. Ben Bernanke, who was the Fed chairman at that point, went on 60 Minutes and he said, yes, I do see that people are talking about there being potentially inflation in the United States. And he said, not going to let that happen. We did not get inflation then. But what has happened differently last year, as opposed to previous times, is the Fed for the first time ever, and again, I just gave you all the reasons why this is basically the Fed's market, but the Fed last year at the end of the year said something much different than they ever said before. They said, for the first time ever, we are going to allow inflation to run hot. So the Fed would prefer if inflation was at 2% every year. That's kind of their long-term average, if you will. So because the last 10, 15, 20 years, inflation was well below the 2%, now the Fed is saying, if you give us inflation, we won't put a lid on it. Mm. We want to get to that long-term average of 2%. So if you do get inflation that is greater than 2%, we're not really going to stop you. So the biggest thing that I learned last year was, again, it really solidified for me that you cannot fight the Fed. And at the same time, they're signaling for the first time ever that if we do get inflation, at least in the United States, they're not going to put a lid on it. So let me ask you this then. So you're pretty much saying that the Fed is, is now almost OK uh, and are OK with inflation. Does that, does that mean that it's automatically going to show up? And where would you start to see that show up? Right. So that's a great question there, Scott. So, right. Again, the caveat is if you give us inflation, if you can create inflation that is greater than 2%, then we'll let it happen. Right. Clearly, 
the the tools used by central banks have not really spurred a lot of the inflation that they thought. Let's take a look at Europe, for example, yep. right? So if you are a someone who lives in the United States, what ends up happening is you put your money in a bank, let's say Chase, for example, Chase will give you a very small nominal amount of interest on your money in your checking account, maybe uh, five basis points, eight basis points, basically zero, right? So your bank is Chase, for example. Chase has a bank. It's the central bank. It's the Federal Reserve in New York. So the, when people talk about the Fed funds rate, right, the Federal Reserve interest rate, that is the, that is the interest rate on the bank's bank accounts over at the Federal Reserve. So when we have a 0.25% interest rate from the Fed, that is the money that is being gained in interest on Chase's money at the central bank. So what we saw in Europe was they took interest rates from 5% to 4%, from 3% to 2% to 1%. And the idea is that if these banks are not making a good return or basically any return on their cash, the idea is the more you lower interest rates, the more that's going to kind of light a fire under the banks and incentivize them to lend out their money, invest in businesses, give more mortgages, all that stuff. So what happened was in Europe was they went all the way down to zero in terms of interest rate. And that still did not spur the type of economic activity and lending that they wanted. So what Europe tried for the first time ever was they went into negative interest. So if you are a Deutsche Bank, just as an example, because they are a European bank, Deutsche Bank parking their money at the ECB, which is just a European central bank, they were getting penalized for doing it, right? They were having to pay the bank for the pleasure of keeping their money there which of course is a little bit backwards. That big experiment, unfortunately, over the past couple of years has not really spurred any of the economic activity from those banks lending out that money. So when we look at the United States, for example, right? Our Fed has said, hey, clearly that, that going below that zero bound, it didn't do the trick. And in fact, it created a lot more deflation. Right. So let's look at what could potentially cause it, because, again, the Fed doesn't really necessarily have the tools that we all thought they did to create inflation. But what they've done is they've kind of opened up the door and said, if you give us that inflation, then maybe we'll get it. So we're looking at a couple things happening right now in the United States that we haven't seen before. So let's talk about one of the first things right now, the Democrats, right? So they were able to maintain the House, their 50-50 split on the Senate, but the vice president of the United States, who is a Democrat, is going to be the deciding factor. So you could basically say they have the Senate too. And of course, President Biden is going to be sworn in the next 45 minutes, actually looking at the clock. How does that influence the Fed? Right. So they don't influence the Fed, but what what they're saying is they ran on. And they are likely to legislate on, assuming anything they said is going to be fairly accurate, very inflationary things. Mm. So they're talking about an additional $2 trillion in additional coronavirus relief. They're talking about $2 trillion for infrastructure. They're talking about a couple trillion for healthcare. They're talking about up to $9 trillion in fiscal policy. See, the big kicker, the big kicker here out of the US government that we're likely to see moving forward that we haven't seen before is a massive 
fiscal policy, where before it was just a massive, massive monetary policy from the Fed. If we look at the 2008-2009 financial crisis, the fiscal stimulus was $800 billion. We're already miles past that. And of course, President Biden has signaled that he'd like to go as high as seven to nine trillion. So the amount of dollars being created by the federal government is much more likely to create inflation than we've ever seen before. Mm. And of course, in some of those things, they're talking about universal basic income, which of course we never talked about before. If we do get any version of universal basic income, which in my opinion, we've already done that, that is going to devalue our currency. And of course, devaluing the, the currency creates inflation. So that's one thing you have. You have massive fiscal spending from the U.S. government, which has never happened at this rate before. And of course, the big kicker there is also the universal basic income. At the same time, if you are a country, if you are Mexico, and you want to buy oil for your citizens via OPEC, you have to do that transaction in U.S. dollars. So historically, what has happened is if I'm Mexico or Scott, you're the, you're the country of Mexico and you want to purchase a, a million barrels of oil from OPEC. If you did not have U.S. dollars, what do you have to do? You have to buy dollars in order to take those dollars and purchase the oil. So that for the last 40 years or so has really kept a floor of support under the U.S. dollar because right now as a world, we're still very much dependent on oil. But again, if we talk about the Biden administration and we talk about like the Paris Accord and we talk about a lot of the countries in Europe, they're talking about getting off of the fossil fuel industry, off of fracking and on different types of energy. Of course, if you don't have the demand for oil that you did that you did let's say 10 years ago when everything was about oil oil oil, even if you take 5% of your energy production over the next couple of years and you put it onto solar or something else, that's going to create less demand to have to own the dollars if you are of course uh, a country that wants to transact via OPEC and oil. On top of that, we're also seeing the Asian companies, uh, the Asian countries, excuse me, China, Russia, talking about transacting oil outside of the U.S. dollar. Again, it's not that it's it really hurts the purchasing power. It's that if you don't have that demand, if China by itself doesn't need to buy the amount of U.S. dollars because they no longer want to transact oil in dollars, that's going to reduce the value of the dollar overnight. If you add Russia to that, you're talking about a lot of different things that may not be ultra inflationary, but because they're likely there to no longer support the value of the dollar, that is also very inflationary. So we're seeing things happening right now, especially over the last six months, that have the potential, and in my book, are already doing that in terms of causing inflation. Just look at prices of corn. Just look at prices of lean hogs. Look at the price of wheat. Look at the price of any of those food-related commodities. They're all at multi-year high. That's very, very inflationary because at some point, if we're going to eat food that has corn in it or it has wheat in it, and those producers don't have the don't have the ability to buy those uh, ingredients at lower prices. That's going to be passed on to us in terms of inflation. 
So there's a lot of things happening now, not just in the United States, but around the world that are either A, inflationary, like having the government of the United States printing seven to nine trillion dollars over the next couple of years. And at the same time, you have other things going on, such as less of a demand for the fossil fuel industry mm -hmm. and much more of a demand to trade oil outside of the United States that isn't so much inflationary, but it's certainly devaluing the dollar. I want to talk, I want to touch on that because you mentioned countries, how I can relate to is businesses, right? Um, you know, from, from owning and investing into multiple companies. And I see what's happening with the dollar. Speak on that a little bit, if you will, on creative ways. If, as the dollar, you know, loses value. And if uh, we do follow like that European market, if you will, of, um, banks being penalized to, to store their money. What are some creative things that uh, companies that you're doing? I know you've mentioned about like PayPal and is this where like Bitcoin could get traction because of this? So with you, if you do, and I, again, it should be pretty clear by now that I think, I think inflation's already here, just we haven't really admitted it yet to the level that we should be. But I think it's quite clear is that if you see the value of the dollar going down, like what happens is one of the reasons why the dollar is used around the world is because if you get your paycheck on a Friday, mm -hmm. like you know what dinner's gonna cost on Sunday. Like you know exactly what it's gonna cost on Sunday. One of the issues that you get and one of the things that really ramps up inflation is if you get your paycheck on Friday and the value of the dollar's off by 10% by Sunday, the price that you're going to have to pay for dinner is going to be wildly different. If we ever get a situation like that in the United States, that's going to scare the children quite a bit because we've never really had that before. So I think you're asking, Scott, about if we are going to see a dollar losing value and losing its, losing its purchasing power, are you asking about what do we do from there? Yes. All right. So think about this. If the paper currency, the fiat currency is losing value, for example, what other things might be doing well? Well, if the paper is not doing well, other assets might be doing very well. So, of course, you have the situation, and let's talk about Bitcoin because you brought it up, and I know we always get questions about Bitcoin from time to time. To me, there are so many reasons why the value of Bitcoin is so much lower today than it is going to be down the road. Of course, you can't print Bitcoins. We can print dollars. We can print whatever we want. You can't print Bitcoins. There's a finite amount of, of coins out there and that's it. Number two, at the same time, what you what, what is really an underestimated driver in my book and the value of Bitcoin is the fact that right now with interest rates so, so, so low in the United States, like in my bank account, I don't even know if I'm getting any interest on my, on my, on my checking account companies what's going to end up happening at a certain point in time and we're only seeing this in my book in two companies so far is companies let's say for example apple they have 136 billion dollars in cash as of like two days ago cash they've got some buying power or maybe it's 436 it's like an it's an unbelievable it's an unbelievable it's number monopoly money man that's not even real so that's yes <laughs> exactly so that's that's in the bank that's getting nothing yeah imagine for a second if Apple was to say, hey, let's put 1% of that into something that we could potentially do better than zero on. What if we put that into Bitcoin? Mm. One stock, one company, 1% of that cash. What would that do to the price of Bitcoin? Just that. 
it would skyrocket because in 2020, Square had a very good year. PayPal had a very good year. One of the reasons why they had such good years is because unlike any other company, they took a percentage of their cash and they put it in Bitcoin. So their cash was growing a tremendous amount when a lot of when every other company was just being stagnant. So of course, Bitcoin, if you one of the things that I think is fantastic about Bitcoin is again, there's a limited number of coins out there, right? It of course it allows people to be able to put cash into something other than just putting it into the bank account. But I think what we have all seen here, whether you agree with me or not, over the past two months is right now, at least according to the polls, and you can believe the polls or not, but the truth is right now, a third of the United States, we have over 300 million people in this country, a third of the United States does not even trust the results of our previous presidential election. So you combine the fact that we're likely to be in an inflationary environment moving forward for all the reasons I just mentioned, combined with the fact that if, wow, if God forbid some of these companies put micro fractions of their cash, right, put micro fractions of their cash into something like Bitcoin, and we do, because we do, that's just the reality where we are today, have a significant number of people, million, tens of millions of people who do not trust to the result of the election, they're going to want to, like China is doing and transacting in oil, they're going to want to figure out some ways to go around that currency that's backed by that government that they now think is kind of phony, right? So you have a lot of different reasons to go ahead and do that. It's not, it's not that much different than something like oil mm-hmm. that is very much supply and demand and commodity driven. But yeah, I mean, there are a million different, there are not a million, there are many, many different reasons to go ahead and be very, very bullish on Bitcoin, because with Bitcoin too, institutions have not even gotten involved. If you're a fund that has over $10 million in it, right, you have, you are very regulated by the SEC, right? The SEC has not given thumbs up to any Bitcoin ETF. And of course, they would never allow you to buy Bitcoin and put it on your books. So people can basically only, right now, if you are an institution, you can basically only buy GBTC, which is a trust. You can't do anything outside of that. So the Bitcoin stuff has not even started. Like the real party in Bitcoin has not even started. Yeah. Let me ask you a two-part question here, Stephen. How does the current climate change, uh, does it change the way that you're trading and utilizing our current suite of products? And the second part of that is if it does or if it doesn't, what are you most excited to share with the members in 2021 that are listening today that you believe is going to make the biggest impact in their trading in 2021? So when I, when I think about 2020, and, and, and if you all would bear with me here for about two minutes, I want to give you a little bit of a story. So I started trading for myself in 2007. This is you know about 13 years ago, and I was much younger than I am right now when I started trading. You know, being a professional athlete, $1,200 a month, it wasn't really cutting it. But as everyone's kind of see, I've been able to be a, you know, decently successful trader over the past however long years. So. so once we got to 2017, if I could take you to my timeline, in 2017, I was offered the opportunity to manage a nine-figure kind of fund, if you will. So somebody had taken a liking to me, they had seen my results, and I was offered to manage a kind of a nine-figure fund and get started that way. And that was a big kind of moment in time in my life because on one hand, I could have just managed money, 
I could have made a lot of money myself, and that would have been it. But I was able to do very well as a trader by myself without really any outside money, any help. And I was able to develop a skill that I knew if I learned, it could basically last me forever. So Scott, what most people don't know about Scott is he's one of the top two or three marketers in the world. And I'm not even exaggerating by a little bit. So Scott will tell you, right? So how often do Facebook ads change, right? As a marketer, how often do you have to change Facebook ads? Almost every day you have to be on top What about of YouTube ads? Every day you have to be on right? top of Right, so marketing, something like marketing and many other industries are changing, right? They change all the time. When it comes to marketing, maybe it's every day. When it comes to manufacturing, over the last four years, we saw a huge migration away from just manufacturing in China. Now it's going to the Philippines, mm -hmm. now it's going to Taiwan, and a lot of it's come back to the US. Those are major, major changes that are happening, and they're still happening again. When it comes to trading, one of the things that I love so much about trading is that the same things we do on the computer now is what people used to do live on a trading floor, right? Live on a trading floor. So trading doesn't change. So at that point in time, when I was offered a lot of money to manage a lot of money, I decided I'd rather go ahead and educate individuals because again, if I can teach them a skill, that they can really understand and they can really go ahead and execute on, that could last them potentially their whole entire life. So instead of me managing outside money, and again, it was a lot of money, I decided that I wanted to go ahead and educate people and teach people and work with them. And I would say 2020, just the results that we were able to get from many of our members of many of our different programs and what some people would say was one of the most challenging trading years in the last decade, which is just blow me away. I mean, we have people making $20,000 a month, $50,000 a month, $80,000 in a quarter. We have somebody who joined one of my programs in October, and he recently said he made 45 times back that cost by the end of the year. We've had some just mind-blowing results from 2020. but. After working with a number of people we have worked with, uh, we really have a very good indication, I think, of what really, really makes a measurable impact and what maybe doesn't make so much of a measurable impact. But again, those results that we were able to get with Market Hero, with Consistent Trader, with our other programs in 2020 were absolutely just mind-blowing. But here's the thing. I think 2021 is going to be even better. Right. One of the things that was beneficial about 2020 was we had some volatility, right? The size and the moves are pretty big. When you have a year like we did last year that had more 1% moves in a single day than any other year in the past 30 years, that typically, right, historically, likely the following year is likely to be at least as volatile as that previous year. So we have a lot of amazing opportunities, but 2021 for me, so not everyone knows, but again, Scott is my partner and we brought on other people in the business. And one of the reasons why we brought on other people in the business in Stephen Brooks Trading is because those folks like Scott and other folks are going to be able to take a lot of things off my plate, emails off my plate, things like customer support, 
that will allow me to not only create and improve on better products like we just did on Market Hero, but also be able to work with people on a much more intimate level. And we'll talk about this in a minute, but you know, people ask about indicators all the time. So, okay, we'll come up with indicators to help you. People ask about live trading sessions where they can kind of hear my thought process and see what I'm doing in the live market. Okay, ask and you shall receive. People want to meet in person. People want to do all these things. And again, 2021 and some of the things we've done on the business side, which we never talk about, but some of the things that we've done on the business side have allowed 2021 to be the year, in my opinion, that we're able to get much more intimate with our with our members individually. And my hope is that 2021 is the year that takes all of our traders over the topper. 2020 is the year where if they haven't got it so far, they get it. And they can just repeat that process over and over and over again. And that's what I wanna do in 2000 and, and 2021. Thanks for listening to this Wealth Stacks interview with Stephen Brooks. Check out the show notes where we dropped a link for an exclusive free training webinar that Stephen is hosting just for our listeners. As always, take a moment to like and subscribe to our channel so that we can continue to bring you the best of the best interviews to help you start stacking the wealth. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you back here next week on Wealth Stacks.